This is the Walking Home from the ICU podcast. I'm Kelly Dayton, a nurse practitioner and ICU consultant. I help teams create awake and walking ICUs through evidence-based sedation and mobility practices. By hearing from survivors, clinicians, and researchers, we'll explore how to give ICU patients the best chance to walk out of the ICU and go home to survive and thrive. Welcome to the ICU Revolution. After all this discussion about ABCDEF bundle practices, it is time to circle back to our why. This conversation is never complete without understanding the perspective of patients. Only they can dispel the decades of misinformation that have led our ICU community to believe sedation is sleep, humane, and prevents psychological trauma. This episode is raw and real. None of this is intended to stir up controversy, but to allow a safe place to share honest and real perspective of an incredible survivor that has truly lived the horrors of sedation and immobility. Chuck, welcome to the podcast. Can you introduce yourself to our listeners? Yeah, my name is Chuck Evans. I uh, am 37 years old and I've been married to my wife, Becky, for about 12 years now. We've got two great kids and uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a PhD student with uh, Baptist Bible Seminary and uh, have been in pastoral ministry and uh, higher Christian ed for a while. So, Wow, the impressive resume, great life. Now you're an ICU survivor. What led you to be in the ICU? You're 37. You look really healthy. Uh, oh, oh, thanks. Uh, <laughs> um, so I had COVID and I was part of the 0.001% that uh, had as strong of a reaction as I did. And uh, my wife uh, texted me one day. She said, hey, that headache that I've been nursing, I uh, I tested positive for COVID. Um, so I grabbed my computer and came home from work and I ended up getting it because I was taking care of the family. and. Um, my wife started getting better, but I kept getting worse. And uh, then she was pretty much all 100% better. And I just kept getting worse and worse and uh, and ended up going in and out of the emergency room uh, at one of the hospitals in Spokane. And they just didn't have any room. Um, so I didn't, uh, I wasn't actually able to receive any treatment until, um, I got picked up by the, uh, uh, by the ambulance and they took me to the hospital. And, um, my case was so severe by that point that they, uh, they admitted me. And, uh, I remembered the, the ride there and I remembered going in and they put a, a mask on me, uh, to help me breathe. And then, um, that was the last thing I remembered. I, I woke up three weeks later, um, and was told just some of the most unbelievable stories of what, what had been going on in life, uh, while I was asleep. And, um, but I also had a lot of my own stories to, uh, to tell too, because it was, uh, it was quite an experience. Right. You say asleep because that's what everyone's calling it, right? Right. When really we know from the research and most importantly from your experiences that when patients are sedated, their brains are so disrupted that they do not receive real restorative sleep. And it makes right. REM 3 and REM 4 absolutely impossible. So there's sleep deprivation on top of COVID and all these things that disrupt the brain. So physically, you looked like you were sleeping. Mm -hmm. That's probably what they told your family. That's probably what they were telling each other as clinicians. But the most important perspective here is yours. What did you really experience? What was going on in your mind? So it's hard for me to talk about this as a um, in vocabulary that a lot of people would accept. Like if I said that I had a dream um, or a nightmare. Um, 
that would probably be a little bit more acceptable. But uh, I don't know if it was from the drugs or from the sleep deprivation or whatever. But what I experienced, uh, it was it was another experience. It was um, uh, I experienced about a lifetime's worth of of time uh, doing different things, being different places. Uh, and here and again lies the hard part about talking about this. It's from the perspective of somebody who was under a lot of drugs and, uh, and all those things. But, um, in the, uh, in this experience, time was a very fluid concept. Uh, you know, there, there, there was a lot of, uh, me being in a specific place at a specific time during different events in history. And, um, and even having effects on history and everything and having to try to fix them and, and everything like that. Uh, it was a time that my imagination was just going very, very, very wild. Um, and, uh, I wasn't, I didn't have the, my body didn't have the capability of waking itself up. So there were times that it spiraled into, uh, nightmares that just got worse and worse and worse. And, uh, one of the things I ended up doing after, uh, after I woke up and was able to physically he uh, healthy enough to do this is I actually had to seek counseling for PTSD, uh, from not, not from going through the experience, but specifically what, what happened while I was sleeping. And I think you bring up a point that many survivors bring up is that it's hard to use normal vocabulary for such an abnormal experience. Right. And because so for those of us that haven't gone through it, yeah, a dream, a nightmare, hallucinations, those things make sense, but you're saying it doesn't fully capture what you experienced. It's, what I experienced was as real as I am talking to you right now. Like it, um, it was very, uh, there were times that I would float back and forth being like, I don't know which reality is real. Like, am I really in a hospital bed or like, is this other reality? Is it, is that, is that what is real? Like what is ontologically real? And, um, and I was at a, at a place I didn't know. And I, for that reason, call these experiences, mm -hmm. um, that they are, they are real to you. People become as psychologically scarred as if they had physically lived and endured these things. And for the sake of helping our listeners, especially our ICU clinicians, really understand that patients are not sleeping. They're not being spared trauma. Oftentimes, some people have no experiences, but they might have trauma from lost time. They might have right. trauma from waking up being so physically debilitated, but many have traumatizing experiences. Again, not dreams not nightmares. These are right. real within your mind. Um, help us understand if you can, I, I don't want to pry. Mm -hmm. I don't want to bring up anything that's triggering or no. um, uncomfortable yeah. or too personal, but um, cause I recognize that some survivors will say, I can't talk about these things cause I'm still too ashamed that my mind could even go there. So don't, don't feel like you have to share anything beyond what you're comfortable with, right. but help us understand maybe some examples, specific examples and descriptions of where you were and what that was like. All right. So you, you seem like a really nice person. So I'm, I, I imagine this just goes without saying no judgment. No, nope, uh, not at all. <laughs> but, no, exactly. Um, this is, I mean, you are not, this is, this is not about you or what's right. in your mind. It's about what happens to our patients in general. And this is, I mean, you're a PhD student studying the Bible and Christianity, and you lived your life so close to God. Mm -hmm. So that even brings in more context, the fact that things could get so dark and hard. Right. So um, I've tried to organize my experiences into some kind of uh, uh, something that tracks and makes sense, you know, some kind of timeline. But um, but there's a lot of it that's just so jarbled. Um, you, you ever watched the show Quantum Leap? I haven't. Okay, so in that show, uh, the main character Scott Bakula um, is the guy who plays him. He leaps in and out of different people, um, trying to change history, and um, and 
the show is all about his different adventures as different people and, and everything really cool, uh, uh, premise for a show. But when you're living it, um, and you're not necessarily jumping in and out of other people, but you are, you, you're just going back and forth in time and, uh, in different places. Like it's, uh, it's really hard to figure it out. And for whatever reason, I found myself always in war. So, um, there were, uh, there were times that I was in Germany during world war two. There was times that I was, uh, most of my time was spent in Korea. Um, uh, there was some of it that was a little later than that, but for the most part, uh, it was, um, somewhere between, uh, the 1910s and the, uh, in the 1950s, um, you know, that, that whole span, um, I had so many different experiences, like running away from Nazis, running away from the Soviet union, um, uh, trying to figure out how to get, uh, technology to work that I remember reading about, but, um, had never actually seen up close. Like, uh, and I know it, I know it sounds so weird, but, um, the, everything had tactile touch. Like I remember the feeling of some of these things. I remember, um, I remember running through the woods and it being cold, uh, you know, the, the feeling of the tree branches hitting my face as I'm running for my life. Uh, the, the, you know, I don't, I don't speak a lick of German and, uh, to hear, uh, German soldiers running after me. Um, it was really, really overwhelming. Um, but there were, uh, also other experiences that happened a little later than that, where, I remember seeing a picture of my dad when he was, uh, about my age. Um, and he was, he was a weird looking dude. Uh, he, <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, it was the seventies, whatever. It, it was just a different time and different culture. But I remember this picture of my dad and in a lot of these experiences, um, you know, I probably had over 150 of these different experiences, but, um, you know, in a lot of these different experiences, uh, I was running from him because he was, um, uh, he was trying to kill me. And, uh, you know, there, there were parts where he was successful. There were, you know, there, there were times when he, um, uh, in, I, I know it, I know it sounds weird, but, um, uh, one of the, one of the common themes throughout the whole thing was cannibalism. Um, like, uh, there was one point when I fell out of a, uh, out of a plane, uh, because we were doing a, a, a low running, um, uh, bomb dive and somehow I fell out and, uh, got captured by the enemy and, uh, was eaten. Um, but I was a, I was alive and awake for the whole thing. And I, I remember feeling it. Um, and there were, uh, there were times when, um, uh, my dad in, in, in this, uh, in these experiences when he caught me and he did the same thing. Um, and my dad had passed, uh, passed away about, uh, 10 years ago. Uh, so I don't know if that had some reason to play for him being the villain and in, in, in a lot of these stories or, or anything like that, my relationship with them was pretty good, but it, it was just the role that my mind had him playing. And uh, does it, does that impact your relationship with him now? I mean, your memory of him at all, does it kind of creep in? Oh, sure. All? Yeah. Like, um, there, there were times I couldn't even look at a picture of him, um, without having flashbacks. Um, survivors have shared that they thought their spouses were the, were the villains. Mm. They come out of their comas. They're terrified of their spouse or they didn't think that they've been betrayed or their spouse was not the supportive, loving spouse holding their hand during critical illness. Right. In their delirium. And then they have to go through intensive marriage counseling and therapy to try to rebuild those relationships again. And how difficult for the, for the partner yeah. <laughs> who never did anything wrong 
Um, and that just, that breaks my heart that it's impacted your relationship with your dad, who is not there to, to really help restore that and build new memories. Right. Yeah. The, one of the hard parts is that other than one specific memory, um, I forgot that my wife and kids existed. Um, I was, you know, for, for me, like 80, 90 some odd years had gone by and like, I had no idea, like I forgot who I was by, by the time I came back, uh, like there, there were, there was so much about me that I had forgotten, uh, because it felt like so much time had gone by and, um, and, you know, other than this one memory of being able to take my wife on a date back in 1950 and, uh, you know, she smuggled with her a copy of back to the future. So we watched back to the future back in 1950 and, and stuff like that when part of the movie took place. Like, uh, it was, uh, other than that one brief, sweet time, uh, my kids weren't a part of it my wife wasn't a part of it. And when I finally came to, um, I, I forgot not only that I was married, but I forgot that marriage was even a thing. I, for, I forgot that people were happy. And, um, like it was, uh, it was a time when I woke up, I, like, I thought that the, the nurses, um, uh, were, I, I thought they were trying to hurt me because, uh, you, when you wake up or when, when I woke up, it wasn't just a wake up like you see in the movies and boom, you're awake. Sometimes you drift in and you drift out, you go in and out. And I do remember when I finally like took, took a hold and like actually started waking up. Um, but there were people who started interacting with me in, uh, in these experiences that when I was actually awake, they were there. And, um, and so it, it took a while to figure this out, but my mind was trying to make sense of what was going on around me. And it was incorporating some of these different nurses and these different people. I'm wondering, you know, with the cannibalism, when you're an IC patient, you're being touched so much. And sometimes you're having procedures done, central lines, plays, chest tubes, whatever mm -hmm. you can, you have pain. Mm -hmm. Is that maybe reinforcing that those, those, experiences when you're having real physical experiences and people are actually touching you yeah. and you're having pain. So I was told that I pulled my feeding tube out and I said that I had to give it to my friend. And I have, I have no idea how this is possible if I was asleep, but you know, a lot of these details are, um, I, I, I don't remember because I was so drugged up at the time. Um, but I was told that I, removed my feeding line and that I was trying to give it to my friend. But I do remember in one of these experiences, I was in a, in a death chamber and I was the only one get, uh, who had a blocked line, uh, because the, the medicine that they were trying to feed you was going through the, um, was going through this. And I realized that my line was blocked. So I was trying to give it to somebody else so that they wouldn't die. And, um, and I, uh, I guess I took my tube out in real life and was trying to give it to somebody else. And that's when they decided to, to do that. But I do remember my nose hurting a lot. I do remember almost a feeling like my nose was being burnt. Um, almost like, uh, my, someone was putting a hot light bulb under there and, uh, I could never figure out that sensation because it was just so unpleasant, but, um, it was, I remember it was the first time in any of these experiences that the term coronavirus had come up, but I had forgot what COVID was because it had been so long. And I, and I remember asking the nurse in this experience, like, do you mean SARS? Because SARS went around. It was a big, it was a big thing that a lot of people joked about because, you know, over here we didn't, uh, we didn't really experience any of the, the bad parts of it, but, um, uh, I, I, rem I remember that part of it. And then when I woke up, the, the nurse was telling me like, you're, you're in the hospital. Do you know, do you know what day it is? 
And I think I remember saying February or March, but it was September. Um, so I had lost a significant portion of my memory before, um, before going into ICU. Uh, luckily I've, I've, I've gotten almost all of it back, but, um, but there for about four or five months before, uh, to the whole three weeks that I was under and a good chunk of time after like my memory, my cognition, nothing, nothing, nothing could be trusted. Like I had to ask questions that were seemingly really, um, kind of no brainers. Like I had to ask my sister, like, were, were you in the military? She said, no, but I remember her being a pretty high ranking official <laughs> Wow! and, and, uh, and I still see her to this day and like in my heart, I want to pay her the respect that you would pay a high ranking air force official, but she hasn't served a day in her life. And, uh, and there are so many other aspects of my life that are honestly still kind of like that, where I see something and I'm like, I have a perspective about you that I'm not sure I can trust. So I think we've all had little tiny glimpses into that. So minor, right? Mm -hmm. We have a bad dream mm -hmm. and, it, and it feels real in that moment, but maybe it lasts like 30 seconds and you wake up with a jolt. I mean, I had a dream where my daughter was in the bathtub and bad things happened, right? And throughout the next day, or maybe even two days, I had to remind myself that it was just a dream. Like I was startled. So, so internally startled from it mm -hmm. that even though it was so quick, I woke right up. I knew it was a dream. I'd have, to, I'd still felt like that weight and a little bit of trauma from that. So I'm trying to project that little tiny glimpse into what it's like to go in our time, three weeks and your time, 90 years mm -hmm. of things that are far worse and real and running for your life and being eaten, being very aware that you're being eaten by people, being betrayed by your father, by just all of it. So it makes sense why, even though now you've done intensive therapy, you're, you're far out from this some way, right? Mm -hmm. You still are psychologically impacted by it. Mm -hmm. um, when the brain is so disrupted from sedation, from critical illness, even when the sedation comes off, it's still lingering in the body for days to weeks, depending on the patient. Um, but even once that medication is metabolized out of the body, that brain is injured mm -hmm. and it takes a while to heal. Oftentimes it doesn't fully heal. So you can be in delirium while sedated and you can stay in delirium even once you're quote awake. You can be they're sitting with your eyes open. You could be following commands. You could be giving a thumbs up, squeezing your ha people's hands, but you still are in another world. Sounds like that's why you pulled your feeding tube out. You yeah. were quote awake, but you weren't really in reality yet. Do you know how long it took for you to come back to reality? Um, I think it happened in stages. Um, like I was released about four weeks after I woke up and I still remember instances where I was having hallucinations after I was home. Um, and there were, there were aspects of reality that I, I, I just wasn't quite sure I could trust at that point. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'd probably, I'd probably say it, it took, it, it took a solid six months for me to really feel like I could trust my, my, uh, uh, what I was perceiving around me, uh, 100% fully like, like sitting in, sitting in a chair or something like that. Um, but the physical effects on my body as well were, um, like I was so weak that I couldn't, um, that I couldn't do anything. So, uh, I felt vulnerable, uh, emotionally, but I was also super vulnerable, vulnerable physically, and just really dependent on absolutely everything. So like, there were a lot of aspects of, uh, of this whole thing that were just very humbling, and very, um, uh, very much a reminder to me that uh, anything that I have is a gift. Mm -hmm. And anything that I could possibly even think to receive um, is a gift, whether it be good or bad, although all the experiences, uh, God has used in my life to show me more about who he is, uh, 
and um, to help me to remember that who I am um, is directly uh, d- directly related to who he is. I see. I see myself. Uh, I b- before this whole thing, I saw myself as not that bad of a person, and I could theologically argue that yes, I was a sinner saved by grace, but uh, but I had been so used to the to the lingo and so used to uh, everything else that it had just kind of become numb to me. But it helped me to see, like, no, I'm I'm a sinner in the hands of a holy God, and the. Uh, just every aspect of the experience uh, brought me back to uh, his goodness and his faithfulness in my life. And that's, we put our, our value and our worth into our physical and cognitive function and what we are able to yep. produce and contribute. <clears throat> but that was a large part taken away from you. Yep. That you still had so much value. There's so many things that we take for granted when we are pretty able people. And I think in the ICU, when we're focused on for, in your case, the lungs, you have sick lungs. Mm-hmm. We get hyper focused on that and we forget the person as a whole. Um, especially when someone's young, I think there's an assumption that um, you have more reserve. You can't, you entered strong, which always improves your chances, but that doesn't mean that you can't come out very debilitated and have long lasting impacts from it. So you were 30, were you 35 at the time? Mm-hmm. Um, so after three weeks of being sedated, not moving a muscle, you were getting medications that were toxic to your muscles. Likely if you were getting propofol, benzodiazepines, um, propofol is a mitochondrial toxin and it disrupts the sodium channels in the muscles. So you lose a neuromuscular connection. You lose muscle mass from not using it. COVID makes you um, hypermetabolic. So you're breaking down so much muscle so fast Mm -hmm. after three weeks. What was that like for you? What was your physical capacity. I lost 60 pounds of muscle, um, and wasn't able to move. Um, like, uh, I have a, I have a picture on my phone. Uh, I had never had a mustache before. And when I woke up because I hadn't shaved in three weeks, I had a, I had a full, uh, full face of hair going. And I, I have a picture where it looks like I just got punched in the face. But what had happened was I tried to take a picture so I could see what my, my mustache looked like. And I couldn't physically hold my phone and it fell and it hit me in the face. So, um, like my, my physical ability was so severely limited. I had to, um, I had to get help uh, going to the bathroom being cleaned up after um, uh, I had to relearn how to walk. Um, but all of this is happening in the height of COVID. Um, I'm not being allowed to see, to see my family. And, you know, I've just gone through this whole, this whole experience and hospitals are on lockdown. Um, like, uh, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't speak loud enough to be able to be heard over the phone. Um, I could whisper and my wife was super patient. So she would, she would try to listen real carefully, but, um, but there were so many times that I would be trying to talk to her and I could tell like, she just, she's not hearing me because I was no more than a whisper. And, um, and just that feeling of loneliness. It, it, it It's interesting. I actually had one doctor, uh, all, all my other nephrologists said that my, uh, that my kidney was toast, that it, it would never, um, it would never work again. I, w- I woke up on kidney dialysis and, um, and that was kind of a big fear for me because I only have one kidney. Uh, so when, when they said you're on, on dialysis, uh, that to me was like, a oh, that, that's not a good thing. You know, can we talk about this a little bit? Like, like what, uh, you know, try to help me under uh, understand this, but, um, they didn't want to talk about it because they didn't want to speak for the doctors. And then there were so many doctors going around or th- there weren't enough doctors going around, uh, to be able to like really get a lot of these answers solidly, but to their, you know, on their defense, 
I was so drugged up, I couldn't understand them anyway. If you've been listening to this podcast, you're likely convinced that sedation and mobility practices in the ICU need to change. The ICU community is facing incredible difficulty with the trauma from the pandemic, staffing crisis, and burnout. We cannot afford to continue practices that result in poor patient outcomes, more time in the ICU, higher healthcare costs, and greater workload for the ICU team. Yet the prospect of changing decades of beliefs, practices, and culture across all disciplines of the ICU is a daunting task. How does this transformation start? It can begin with a consultation with me to discuss your team's current practices, barriers, and to formulate a plan to help your ICU become an awake and walking ICU. I help teams master the um, ABCDEF module through education, uh, consulting, simulation training, and bedside support. So Let's work together that, to move um, your team into the future uh, of evidence-based you know, ICU care. The Click the link in the show notes of this episode we, uh, we to find out more. To not go to physical rehab. Uh, it, inpatient uh instead we opted for in home um physical therapy and uh and rehabilitation and um so there were uh i was released directly from the hospital to home and my wife uh kind of nursed me back to help and what was your so you had been in the hospital for an additional four weeks after coming out of the coma right so almost two months wow and so Theoretically, while in the hospital, while still inpatient, during those four weeks, you were somewhat rehabilitated. Even still, at 35 years old, coming home after that, what was your physical capacity like that, like upon arriving home? So um, I had, I had to be completely assisted uh, in walking. Um, so I went through the gamut of uh, going from wheelchair uh, to then using a walker to then using a cane to then going unassisted uh, with a limp um, uh, just because my body's still trying to figure out what it's doing. Um, but I also ended up getting gout really bad because, because of my kidney. Um, I, I couldn't process any of the uric acid and anything like that. So, uh, so my feet weren't in a position where I could walk on them anyway. So, um, so if I ended up on the floor, I would be on the floor for hours until um, until my wife or someone could get home and help me crawl back into the onto the couch or into bed or, or or anything like that. So, how often did you fall? Do you know? I never fell. Okay. If I if I ever found myself on the floor, it was on purpose. Um, I don't I don't exactly remember why. And and I'm thinking back to it like that's a really dumb decision on my part to to get down on the floor but um i do remember one time um i was trying to retrieve something out of uh out of a drain and my wife didn't know how to do it and so i had to take the p-trap off the um off the bottom of the thing and i'm i'm trying really hard to move this thing that would have been so easy for me only three months earlier and um uh i wasn't able to stand up after that so i just had to crawl as best as I could. Um, and I just went and slept on the floor for a while until, um, until I could, uh, muster up the energy to try again. Um, but it was, it was, it was hard, but it was specifically hard on my wife because she had to not only take over a lot of the stuff and we have two young kids and, uh, and everything like that, but like she had to do a lot of really physically demanding stuff, uh, getting my big butt around. So, um, like she had to load up my wheelchair. She had to load up my big heavy Walker. Um, and, uh, I'd been so tired of being cooped up in hospitals and at home. I wasn't super patient. Uh, so like I wanted to go out and experience the world. I wanted to go to the mall. I wanted to, I wanted to see people and, um, you know, that, 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 that's one of those things that when you're in the hospital, you just really forget to appreciate is people not wearing scrubs. So the real world. Yeah. 
Yep. Um, you, you, you can see it from out, out of your window. Um, sometimes if you're lucky enough to have a, um, a room with a, with a view, but, uh, my only view was a parking lot. And even though that was so hard at home, you felt like that was, that was better, better alternative than the depression and the loneliness and isolation of being inpatient. Yep. Um, the COVID ICU I was working in was an awake and walking ICU. And most patients, especially if they were young, were awake most of the time and walking unless they couldn't auctionate with movement. They would help prone themselves. They would be, um, walking wall to wall within their rooms. And most of them walked out the doors and went home um, mm -hmm. shortly after being extubated, getting, getting the tube taken out. And so I think um, when we don't on the, on the ICU side, when we don't understand what it's like after the ICU, it's really hard to be, to see past what we're doing in the ICU. Does that make sense? We don't understand the repercussions of our decisions in that moment. And COVID was a time of a lot of fear. We went back to a lot of the practices from the 1990s. Um, and we were using harder sedatives at higher rates, deep, deep sedation. There was just a lot going on. Um, but to assume that someone in their mid thirties is going to bounce back from that kind of coma, um, is a very common assumption, but now you're far out. How has all of this affect you cognitively, psychologically, um, emotionally? I mean, and your like relationships with your wife and your family, what has that journey been like since then? Yeah. So my, uh, my relationship with my wife is now better than it, than it ever has been. Uh, there's something about, um, being dependent on somebody as a man that, uh, helps kind of foster that intimacy, I would say. Um, and my wife is such a nurturing person that I think, having that responsibility over me for a while, um, kind of help foster it for her as well. Uh, you know, the, uh, the relationships between me and my kids, uh, has been really hard because they had had the conversation that, you know, dad probably isn't going to make it. And, uh, and they were five and seven at the time. And, uh, like they spent three weeks wondering if dad is going to wake up. And then, uh, after I did wake up, they were asking like how long until dad comes home. And, um, the kind of psychological scarring that I've had, I would probably argue pales in comparison to what they've gone through. Um, they have, uh, come close to losing a parent, but then they've had to watch a parent fight tooth and nail to find some semblance of normal after, after something like this. And, uh, so there, there are a lot of aspects of my relationship with my kids that I'm still, that I'm still working on. Um, my, my son still has dreams that, um, my wife calls him into the room to tell him, to tell him that I passed away. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, the, the latest instance of that was just last week. Uh, and, uh, my daughter, um, she has her walls that she's put up because she doesn't want to get hurt. She doesn't want to let herself, um, uh, get past that, uh, that sense of, um, she doesn't want to let herself be vulnerable because she's afraid that I'm still going to die from it. Mm. Um, she's, uh, she's afraid that, uh, I'm not out of the woods yet, even though it's been a long time and physically I'm healthier than I ever been. So, well, and yeah, that's, I think that's something that we certainly didn't appreciate before COVID is how important the families are and mm -hmm. being present, being involved in that process and having connection with their loved ones during that critical illness. Um, I've heard from families of survivors that it was traumatizing for them not to be connected, not be able to communicate, not to be able to talk to them. I mean, I just, I don't, I've never gone three weeks without talking to my husband. Mm -hmm. That's what your wife went through on top of wondering if you'd come home or not. Um, there's a protocol called the ABCDEF bundle, and it gives us tools to make it so that as many patients as possible can be as, as awake, communicative, autonomous as possible. So what I would have loved to have seen in your case is that um, you, you had been 
awake, even while intubated, been able to zoom your family, text your family, um, ideally have your family at your bedside. I know everyone would have preferred that. From your perspective, having gone what you've gone through and appreciating that it's not comfortable to be intubated, but I've had hundreds if not thousands of patients be awake and calm and and fine while being intubated. The ICU side has a very um, big concern that patients will be traumatized by the breathing tube. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of reasons why we sedate patients is because we don't want them to be traumatized. If you could have it, have had a choice. If you could have been awake and aware of what was going on, had your wits about you, communicated, had the strength to use your phone, to text, to write, which option would you have taken had that been an option? That's, that is a really good question. Um, I don't know if I've ever considered it, um, considering what, um, uh, what my specific case was like, because I did have sepsis as well. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, was told that part of the, um, part of the sedation was because the, the drugs that they were giving me for the sepsis would have, um, made me really sick or, or I would have felt really sick. Uh, I don't really, I don't, I don't really remember, but I remember the fact that I had sepsis, uh, playing a really big part of it. Um, and, and if, just for the ICU clinicians, I, um, I've treated lots of septic patients. Um, sepsis is not an indication for sedation in general, just by the research, by the books. Right. But culturally there's an understanding of the sicker the patient is, the more they need sedation. Hmm. That's a cultural belief. And I, again, I wasn't there during your case. I don't know what your numbers were and all the details, but that is a common perception that the sicker the patient is, the more sedation they need, but it's not, not usually founded in real, um, reality or evidence. Okay. Um, considering everything, um, on this side of it, uh, you know, had you asked me right when I came out of it, when I still didn't have any muscle mass or anything like that, um, my answer would be completely different, but being this far removed from it and just being able to see what God has done in my life and in my family's life. Um, because even though we have our things that we're still really messed up with, uh, even though like I still get flashbacks and, uh, you know, some of these things are, are, are still very much a part of our lives. Even with all of that, to see the good that God has brought out of it. I don't think I would, uh, I don't think I would change it. Um, that's not to say it wasn't the hardest thing that I've ever gone through. Um, like I've, uh, I've lost one of my parents. Uh, we've, uh, we've gone through miscarriage. We've gone through, um, just some of the worst things in life imaginable. And as far as physical, emotional, psychological toll, this is the hardest thing that I've ever gone through. Um, and I don't think, I don't think I would change it. Uh, I can appreciate that a little bit in my, in my little world. I have a daughter with a lot of medical needs and I would love to take all of that away from her. At the same time, I'm am grateful for all the miracles, the joy, the blessings. Like it, it's really hard to describe to people that haven't been through something like this before right. that so much good can come out of it. Um, absolutely. I'm so glad that you have had good family support. Do you have faith? Do you have like a good, strong foundation to fall back on. I worry about patients that don't have that kind of support or resources to really recover and what the trajectory of their lives are like. And from the ICU side, no one wants you to suffer that. Everyone was working so hard to make sure that you had as little trauma as possible from their perspective, that you had the best chance to recover and to survive and things like that. Um, the important part of your testimonial is that um, a lot of times what we perceive as being comfortable, the least traumatic as possible, things like sleep are not what we perceive. It is not what we think it is. And I really believe in patient autonomy, families being informed, patients being informed of the reality of these things. Did you know that you had delirium when you were in or after the hospital? Did your wife know? Did you have any heads up what the future would hold for you? Um, I knew that I was hallucinating. Um, but, uh, for me, just 
figuring out what what reality was 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 really hard um nobody ever came right out and said you have delirium you are delirious you're going nuts just stop or you have uh, a brain injury this is why yeah. you're having these experiences or here's how that's going to affect your life potentially in the future here are some resources to recover yeah i i don't remember um i don't remember anything specifically for that i do remember uh being given resources because of my kidney dialysis i i had to do outpatient um dialysis for a while and then um i do remember there being uh support for physical rehab and stuff like that but um uh nothing from uh i i don't remember receiving anything uh as far as help and guidance on uh the uh psychiatric side of things and we want to make sure that our patients after we've worked so hard that they survive that they have the best chance to thrive to not come back to the hospital to go back to the normal lives and so we're really good at setting you up with nephrologists if you had a kidney injury, pulmonologist, if you had a lung injury, um, physical therapist, if you have physical impairments when it comes to the brain and the soul of a patient, we're pretty unaware. Um, I think the perception is if you as a patient are following commands, you're not in your head, you're, you know what day it is, you're probably fine. You're good to go home. Um, you'll go back to work in a few weeks once you physically recover. And so what I would love for our ICU community to understand is that your brain matters and it's been injured from the critical illness and especially the sedation. I, as a healthy person right now, I could go into medically induced coma for the next three weeks and I would have very similar experiences to what you had. Even without the sepsis, even without the COVID, um, I would likely have a brain injury as well. And so we need to understand that this is not um, a benign intervention. It comes with high price, big repercussions. Fortunately, you were young, you were healthy, you have a stable family, resources, support, a community. Not everyone has that. Right. So when we're trying to figure out whether or not a patient needs to be sedated, your words, I hope, will come back to their minds and say, should I tell them? Should I give them an option and say, if you are sedated, you may have these experiences. It may traumatize you, it may impact the rest of your life. Well, I... One one aspect though is that when when I got intubated, it was kind of understood that intubation at that stage in the pandemic was a death sentence. That um that like most people who went to the hospital were not intubated. Mm -hmm. Only the very, very, very serious ones were being intubated. And if you watch the news, um which is a very sore subject. You watch the <laughs> right. you watch the news, and um, anybody and everybody who's being intubated dies. Right. Um, you know, I do remember waking up and having the doctors, uh, and the in the nurses. You know, they they all took a moment to swing by and say hi, and that they were really excited to uh, to see me doing so well, and they were talking to me like they've known me. And I was like, I've never seen you before in my life. And like, you've been here for three weeks. I've been bathing you and taking care of you and all these things. Like, I don't expect you to remember me, but I know you. <laughs> so it was very, very weird experience. Especially I could have swore I saw one of the nurses hand another nurse like five bucks or something like that. Like, I didn't think it was going to make it. So uh no, and the fact that you were successfully off the ventilator without needing a tracheostomy that yeah, after, after over three weeks, that was probably not common. Right. Because I think it's 15 days that they, that they do the, they do the trach. Um, Depends on so, the unit. Yeah. Yeah. So, something like that. Um, that's, that's what was communicated to my wife. And for whatever reason, I made it to 19 days without getting one. Yeah. Um, they didn't have to put a hole in your throat. I mean, that's. Yeah. That's a huge accomplishment. Um, and again, all of that is minimized when patients are strong enough to breathe. And so fortunately, you were strong enough to breathe, even mm -hmm. after losing 60 pounds of muscle. Um, that, I think, is, is a big accomplishment, a big miracle, and a, and a great thing for you and for the team. Um, I 
I've been to your hospital. I know some of the people there and they are wonderful people. They genuinely care about their patients. I know that they work so hard to provide quality, loving, genuine care for their patients. Um, it does make me sad that they don't necessarily always get to connect with their patients. Cause I think yeah. you would have been a great person to connect with and would have been the kind of patient where they would say, this is why I come to work every day. They still felt that way about you, even while you were sedated, but for you to be able to write on a piece of paper to them, to connect with them, if you were able to get out of your bed and walk and they were able to see your, your, your ability to fight for your own life and to connect with your family, that changes the experience for the patient, obviously. Right. But it transforms the experience for the clinicians, as, um, especially. Yeah. One of the things that really felt um, almost like I was robbed by this was that I never had the opportunity to go back and say thank you to those people. Um, like, I, I still remember a lot of their names and this much of their faces. Um, but, uh, like, the the woman who woke me up, I remember, uh, I remember her name. I remember uh, a few of the nurses. There was one nurse there um, who was struggling with uh, gender dysphoria and had another preferred uh, name, pronouns. And I'm not trying to make light of her, his situation, but I was super confused by everything that had happened to me, like as I was waking up from this to then be in a spot where I had a transgender nurse, like that was like throwing a, a wild card at me. Like, Hey, what are you going to do with this? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> Cause you're, you felt like you had to keep everything straight, but you couldn't even keep your own person straight. You couldn't even keep yourself straight. Right. Like I like being, being somebody who, uh, comes from my training background. Uh, like I do have very strong opinions on that and they're opinions that I don't share openly because, you know, th there are a lot of opinions that you don't share openly and honestly with everyone. You have to, you have to temper some of those things in love. You have to, um, you have to, uh, think before you speak and, I felt like um, I felt like I was somebody equipped with a lot of logic that could really hurt somebody if I wasn't careful with my words and I was not in a place to be careful with my words. And, and the one person who really probably needed some extra love was this person. Like you didn't want to hurt them. I didn't. But you and, weren't in a place to be able to really think through. <laughs> A right. lot of this stuff. And I think when we really understand delirium, which I think most of our ICU community doesn't fully understand, they can recognize if a patient is confused. Hopefully that's enough to give people grace and mercy. If they're saying things, responding in a way, sometimes patients are completely erratic. They're thrashing, they're agitated. They're, you know, patients are not themselves. <laughs> right. I don't think they're not fully accountable when they are so cognitively disheveled and um they have a brain injury mm -hmm. so as we understand what you had been through during your coma the injury to your brain we we wouldn't look at a kidney and be like why this kidney should be doing all the filtration why can't it do it like we wouldn't be dissing on the kidney we shouldn't be dissing on the brain either to say they're a bad person because they're not using the pronouns that I prefer. They're not right. responding in a very respectful way, even when patients. So I, I, I ask clinicians when I'm doing presentations, how many have been assaulted by a patient? Most of them raise their hands. And I say, um, put your hand down. If your patient was not delirious when they assaulted you, if they were in their right mind and they totally knew what was going on and everyone keeps their hands up because it's that common for patients with delirium to not be on their best behavior, to be their best right. selves. So like, be who they really are. Well, there's, there's, there's also the aspect where, um, yes, I was, I didn't have the ability to filter, um, to filter my words and everything like that. But I was also still in a, in a place where my grasp on reality was very tenuous. Um, so as I, after I woke up, as I'm progressing from 
the bottom floor ICU and going up the respective floors as I'm getting better and better, uh, getting ready to be released. Uh, I, I remember, uh, having just a really bad, um, uh, I thought that the nurse was going to cut me up and try to sell me for, for parts. And, uh, I had, I, I had convinced myself that that's what was happening because as I heard her on her cell phone, whatever she was saying was being translated to me as her plans of how she was going to do it and everything. And I was, I was outright terrified that, oh, great, here I am in a, in yet another situation and someone's going to try to hurt me. Um, and I wouldn't have the physical capability of defending myself at all if if that was the case. So, um, like, I just became a disoriented, hot mess often. Um, and it didn't take a lot to get me there uh, just because, like, I was, I, I was honestly just really frail emotionally. Um, just kind of broken as a person. <laughs> and I'll, and I'll mention just for ICU, ICU clinicians, sometimes when patients are in this state and they're becoming erratic, they're, they're maybe becoming agitated. We really respond to that kind of presentation with more sedation, even mm -hmm. on the medical floors, we give Ativan, we might give some Versed pushes, right? Halidol, we might just want to chemically restrain them to quote, keep them safe. But understanding why you were afraid, a lot of it had to do with delirium. Giving medications that cause, exacerbate, and prolong delirium is not the most logical nor humane intervention for that situation. But so that you understand the clinician side, sometimes it's hard. Um, yeah. Sometimes we're afraid as clinicians that you're going to lash out at us no matter how sure. weak you are, right? Or I think a lot of it comes from um, we want you to be comfortable. And when you are, have your eyes closed and you're laying there still, we perceive that you're sleeping and we feel like we have now made you comfortable and now you're, you're going to be less traumatized and less scared and agitated. But the ironic thing is this is why your testimonial is so important is because you were scared, you were worked up because you were confused and we need to clear out that confusion and rehabilitate your brain rather than continue to keep you stuck in bed and stuck in that alternative reality. Right. Now, uh, is the brain something that can be worked on or is it just one of those things that's, uh, that's ignored because we don't even have the ability to fix it? Um, it's yeah. In the ICU setting, we, there are a lot of things we can do to prevent even getting there, even injuring the brain, things like sepsis can injure the brain. So there are some things that are unavoidable, but we can have a lot of control into how severe that injury becomes, how severe the delirium develops um, by avoiding medications that cause it, um, mobilizing patients, doing cognitive therapies, um, keeping the brain engaged, interactive, um, having the family at the bedside. But here you were, and this is what um, one of our top delirium researchers, he calls these COVID units a delirium factory. Mm -hmm. You had no family. You were not mobilized. You received very toxic, neurotoxic, delirogenic medications um, on top of having sepsis and COVID, which were very hard on the brain, period. Now, after the ICU, all of those tools still apply. You need you needed a family. You needed to be mobilized. You needed to be rehabilitated, get out of bed. You need to have speech therapy, occupational therapy, things to engage and retrain and rehabilitate your brain. Many survivors need and often don't receive um, cognitive therapy as well as psychological therapy and physical therapy after the ICU. Post-ICU syndrome looks different for each patient, but it usually includes the physical, cognitive, and psychological um, disabilities or impacts from critical illness. So you received psychological therapy, physical therapy, but oftentimes um, we don't understand the need for cognitive therapy, especially if someone was like in their PhD program beforehand and they're really smart. And they still seem to have be really capable, even after the ICU. Have you noticed some changes in your cognition? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like, um, I wasn't in my PhD program at that point. Uh, you know, that's more of a of a recent development, and um, and I was very clear with uh, with my instructor. I'm actually in my first class right now, and and I told him like a big part of this 
class for me is honestly an experiment. I want to see if I can do it uh, because I don't know what kind of damage might be lurking around back there because I haven't, um, I haven't had the time guidance or resources to be able to really look into it to see like what, you know, what kind of potential lifelong impacts are there? Because for the most part, I do seem pretty normal, but like, um, uh, I've really lost my sense of direction. Like I used to be able to, uh, navigate places really easily. And, um, I get lost as I'm driving a little bit more easily than I used to. So praise the Lord for GPS. Um, but, um, there are things that I forget. Uh, there are a lot of things that, um, honestly, like, like I was saying earlier that, um, made sense in my experience, uh, like some of those details that I have not been corrected on yet because it's never come up in conversation. And, um, you know, there every now and then something slips up is like, Oh, you know, what about this? And everyone will just kind of stop and look at me and be like, no, that's not how that works. Or, (laughs) or it did in your delirium. Right. Yep. Yep. And I've heard that from other survivors, like I lived a whole nother world, a whole nother life. And now I'm trying to like make that go away and Mm -hmm. live my regular life. And in this other alternative reality, those things made sense. And now I'm supposed to automatically recognize that that didn't happen, that that wasn't the logic, that that wasn't real. It doesn't automatically connect. Like, like I, I look at those things like one of those old switchboards that the telephones used to be operated with. And the experience that I went through was like somebody going through and manually changing all my, all my connections. And, uh, until I'm able to figure out what those, what, what connections aren't right. And until I encounter something that's not right, like I can't physically go back and pull that plug and put it back into the right spot. I have no way of correcting, uh, those errors until they come up in conversation. But here I am two, you know, two years later realizing some of my history facts are off. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, it's like, hey, yeah, this war, you know, this battle of the of World War II, it happened over here. I'm like, no, it didn't. It was over there. And you're like, like but no. I lived it. Like, I, I was there. there. I was there. Like, <laughs> you, you don't know what you're talking about. Stop it. <laughs> no. Chuck, that, that is just wild. Yeah. So, um, so there, there are a lot of aspects of it that um, I think will, will be with me until, until I go home. But, uh, but luckily because of the amazing work of the team there and, um, the support of my family and just the guidance from the Lord and everything, um, I'm glad to report that's looking to be a long time away unless there's something in it that I'm just not aware of, but no, absolutely. Certainly they, they saved your life and I look forward to all the wonderful work that you're going to do within your life and within your family. Um, I'm sorry for the sufferings that you've had, but I appreciate your example of turning those into good things and building a greater future because of it. And thank you for sharing these really difficult and intimate experiences. I think survivors are going to find a lot of validation. Things that you've shared, survivors have told me in private, but they're, it's hard to articulate that in such a public forum, right? Yeah. I've had you, survivors. You, you don't want to sound crazy. You do, like, no. like you. The, the, there's a very real fear of, uh, of sounding crazy because at one point in time, you knew you were crazy. Sometimes they, they go years without telling anybody Mm. because they're afraid that they'll be institutionalized. Hopefully we're advancing in our mental health culture and things like that. But, um, this needs to be part of the advancement as we recognize that patients do not sleep under sedation and that oftentimes they can be in vivid graphic realities that are even worse than the ICU. And as we understand that, that will help us navigate whether or not patients really should be sedated in their individual cases. And when they do have to be sedated, hopefully we have more empathy and we prepare our patients and their families with more resources to be able to be validated, to rehabilitate, to have the psychological support and cognitive rehabilitation that they need. Thank you so much, Chuck. You're very welcome. Thank you.
schedule a consultation for your ICU, as well as find supportive resources such as the free ebook, case studies, episode citations, and transcripts, please check out the website www.daytonicuconsulting.com.